All right. So we're studying the names of God. And, and just kind of a quick word about why studying the names of God is important. We hear the term God used a lot in our culture. You hear people say God this, God that. And they, they use his name in many different uh, settings, many different ways. And when someone just out on the street says God and I say God, we may be talking about two totally different things, right? Because a lot of times people use the word God in a very generic sense. And so studying the names of God helps us to move past the generic use of the term God and to look specifically at who the God of the Bible is, the one true God. And he reveals himself in many places by giving us a name or a title for himself. It helps us to understand who he is and what he's like. So this study of the names of God helps us to move beyond the generic to the real God, the, 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 the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who revealed himself by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. And so we are looking at those names. So thus, thus far, we've studied the names of God that begin with El. Uh, the term El is, a, is a, a title for God. Elohim, we studied that. Uh, El Roi, we studied that. El Shaddai, God Almighty, we studied that name. Uh, we studied the uh, name of God, Adonai, which, anybody remember what Adonai means? You're hurting my feelings. What's, what's Adonai mean? Lord. Adonai means Lord. I'm glad you, somebody got that. Um, Adonai means Lord, Master, Boss. And that's a, a, a title that's used of God often throughout the Bible. Uh, last week, or actually last week was a revival, two weeks ago, we studied uh, the name of God, Yahweh, which is his proper name, the name he revealed of himself to Moses at the burning bush, and the name that's used of God all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. When you see the divine name of God in the Bible, it's going, in your English Bibles, it's going to be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you ever see Lord in all caps, that's the divine name of God, sometimes um, pronounced as Yahweh. Okay, or Jehovah is another pronunciation of that name of God. But the English translations just use capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. If you look in your Bible and you see capital L and then lowercase O-R-D, that's the term Adonai. Okay, just the, the more general term Lord or Master or Boss. So we studied Yahweh two weeks ago, and that's a very important name because the next, um, next several names we're going to study all start with Yahweh. Okay? Or Jehovah, however you want to say it. And tonight we're looking at the name Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. Now when you look at studies of the names of God, and they get to these names that are built off the divine name, they use Jehovah instead of Yahweh. And I don't know why that is. I'm, that's a head-scratcher for me. Uh, Jehovah is a middle-aged pronunciation of the divine name of God that takes some Latin letters and combines it with the vowels from the word Adonai, and it's just a... It's not, it's not the Hebrew word. Jehovah is not the Hebrew word for the divine name of God. But for some reason, when you see studies on the names of God, they use Jehovah. So because you're probably more familiar with that, I'm going to use Jehovah too, Jehovah Jireh. Instead of Yahweh Jireh, I'm going to say Jehovah Jireh. I think Yahweh is a closer pronunciation, a better pronunciation of the original Hebrew name of God. But just, just, just for familiarity's sake, we're going to say Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Nisi instead of Yahweh Jireh, Yahweh Rapha, Yahweh Nisi. Everybody got that? Everybody with me? Is that too much information? Okay, all right, good. Uh, thanks for your honesty. All right, let's move on. So, 
Wade, what does the name of God, Jehovah Jireh, what does that mean? It simply means the Lord provides. The Lord provides. And this name of God is only found one time in the Old Testament. The word provides is found in many different places, um, often in conjunction with the divine name, but this title, the Lord provides, is found one time in Genesis chapter 22. But there are scriptures that support the truths that are related to this name of God. So turn to Genesis chapter 22 with me. We're going to look at one of the most compelling, gut-wrenching stories in the Bible. This is a powerful, powerful story in God's Word. One of my favorite Old Testament passages uh, that just really captures your heart and your mind. So I'm praying that God would just capture our heart and our mind tonight with Genesis chapter 22 because there is a lot of, 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 of good stuff in here for us to uh, look at. And, and this story helps us to understand what we mean when we say Jehovah Jireh. It helps us to understand what we mean by saying that God is a, is a God who provides. The Lord is a Lord who provides. All right? And there are four aspects of this story uh, that I want you to see. You can just follow along there with me in your notes. First of all, I want you to see the test decided. The, the story here is the story of God calling Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. All right? And so it's a, just from that description, you see this is a, just a very emotional story that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, uh, Isaac. And so first thing we see in the story is the test decided. God decides to test Abraham. Look what it says in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. It says, It came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Notice it says that God tested Abraham. So what's about to happen in this story is God testing Abraham. Now, why, do, why does God test Abraham? Why does God test anybody? Why does God test you? Why does God test me? Well, here's something that I've learned in life, and I think it's backed up biblically. I've learned that when I am squeezed, what's on the inside comes out. You, have you figured that out in your life? It's like a tube of toothpaste. If you squeeze it, what's going to come out? Toothpaste. And when we are squeezed by life, as often we are, What's on the inside, our true character, is going to come out. Like it or not, uh, you know, it may be pretty, it may be ugly, but whatever's on the inside is going to come out when you are squeezed by life. So I believe that God will often allow us to be squeezed by life or will often cause the squeezing himself to see what's on the inside, so, to see what our care. So we can see what our character and what our nature is. And so I believe here God is going to see if the giver is more important than the gift. You see, God had given Abraham a very great gift. He'd given him a son named Isaac at a very old age. I mean, miraculously, he allows Abraham and Sarah, advancing years, to have a son named Isaac. And you can imagine how precious this son, this promised son, was to Abraham because God had told Abraham, through your descendants, I'm going to make you a, a mighty nation. So when Abraham was holding Isaac, he was holding the promise of God. That this is the one that God's going to use to, to make me a great nation. And remember what the Lord told Abraham over in Genesis 12? He said, through your descendants, that nation I'm going to create, through your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Your descendants are going to touch all the nations. 
You say, wait, well, how is that possible? How did Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people, how did the Abraham's descendants touch all the nations in the world? Well, through the Jewish people came a Messiah named Jesus. And Jesus went to the cross, and he died on the cross. The Bible says he died not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. So because Jesus died on the cross, if anyone, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of nationality, if anyone turns and embraces Jesus as Lord and Savior, they are blessed with salvation. So through the descendants of Abraham came the Messiah. Through the death of the Messiah came salvation available to anyone who will embrace Jesus, right? And that's how Genesis 12 played out. So Abraham's holding this baby named Isaac, and this is the promise of God. I mean, you can imagine how precious this gift from God was. And now, God's going to test Abraham. Do you love the giver more than the gift? Are you willing to lay down the gift of God? That, that's what's happening here. He's, he's testing Abraham. He said, wait, does God really do that kind of stuff? Well, turn over with me to Deuteronomy, fifth book in the Bible. You're in the first, so turn over to the fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy, chapter 8. God speaking to the nation of Israel after he delivered them from Egyptian slavery and led them into the, uh, to the wilderness. They went to the promised land, but didn't go in the promised land. They were disobedient, so God made them wander in the wilderness. Look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you. Now watch this. Testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. So notice the test of God for the people of Israel was designed to reveal what was in their heart. Everybody see that? And that's what's happening here with Abraham. This test to lay down his son Isaac, to kill his son Isaac, is a, is a test decided by God to reveal what was in his heart. So the test is decided. And God, I believe, will decide on tests for all of us in this life to reveal what's in our heart. And nothing reveals it like being squeezed, right? Secondly, I want you to see the task described. What does God ask Abraham specifically to do? And this is really striking. Look what happens in, back in Genesis 22. I need to get there. Genesis 22 verse 1, it says, It came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! And he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, notice, notice the, the emotional import of this command. Notice how he starts it in verse 2. Take now your son. Everybody see that? So that's enough right there. Take your son. But then it gets even more powerful. Look what he says next. Your what? Your only son. Son of the promise here. And then he says what? Third. And the one that you love. Take your son. Your only son. The son you love. There's no mistaking here that Isaac was precious Abraham. And I want you to take him and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. That means kill him, take his life, and then set him on fire. Pretty striking. Your son, your only son, the son you love, kill him. 
That is the task described. It could not be more shocking. You just read through Genesis and, 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 and read about the life of Abraham, this man of faith. All of a sudden you get in you're thinking, what in the world is going on? I mean, it just grips your heart when you read that. Your son, your only son, the one you love, kill him. That's what he's saying here in this text. That is the task described. But this story is powerful because, I want you to see the third thing. There's a tragedy diverted. A tragedy diverted. Look what happens in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. So Isaac was old enough by now to carry wood. Um, A lot of scholars that I've read um, suppose that he's probably a teenager somewhere in there, maybe young adult. So it says... He laid the wood on Isaac, his son, took his, in his hand the fire and the knife, which he would both need for a burnt offering. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? He said, We're going to a worship service. We're going to offer a burnt offering. And I see that you have the fire and you have the knife and you have the wood, but there's one thing missing. There's no lamb to offer. And look how Abraham answers him in verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide. Everybody see that? God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Can you imagine the emotion there? The, the, the confusion of Isaac. He doesn't understand what's happening or why it's happening. And, and Abraham binding his son to, to take his life. It says he, he built the altar, arranged the wood, bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. He's going to be obedient to God here. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham! Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. A tragedy diverted. Abraham here was about to go through with it. How do we know that? Because God said, you you gave me your only son. You were about to do what I told you to do. And so he says, stop. The, The angel stops him from taking Isaac's life with the knife. And, and we all read that. We go, I'll go, Phew. right, deep breath. Wow. That we, we feel the emotion of the passage. And then we see the tragedy diverted. Abraham does not have to take the life of his son Isaac. We all think, oh, I'm so glad. The tragedy was diverted. But fourth, there's the triumph declared. We've seen the test decided, the task described, the tragedy diverted. But then there's the triumph declared. The triumph declared. Look what happens in verse 13. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham 
went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place. Here it is. The Lord will provide. That's Jehovah Jireh. In the Hebrew language or Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide. He says, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. So the tragedy is diverted and the triumph is declared. Uh, Isaac's life is spared. There's a, a ram in the thicket that serves as the burnt offering instead of his son. And there are three aspects of this triumph I want you to see. First of all, there's the triumph of faith. What we see exhibited in Abraham's life is the triumph, the victory of faith. He was a man of great faith. We see a little inkling of this in verse 5. It says, Abraham said to his young men, they're walking towards Mount Moriah. Verse 5, he said, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. So even though... God told Abraham to kill Isaac. He had enough faith to believe because Isaac was the child of promise that they would return. That's pretty strong faith, isn't it? Wait, is that really what's going on there? That's exactly what's going on there because turn over to Hebrews, the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11. I want to show you the, the New Testament commentary on Abraham's actions. Hebrews chapter 11. Look in verse 17, Hebrews 11, verse 17. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. So he was the promised son that God would use to, to make a great nation. Now look at verse 19. Look at the, the strength of Abraham's faith. He considered... That God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a tithe. You know what it's saying here? It's saying that Abraham was willing to go through with killing his son Isaac because he believed so strongly that Isaac was the, was the promised child that, that, that God had said he would have. He knew that if God was, God was going to keep his promise, so God would have to raise him from the dead. And he believed God would raise him from the dead. It was a triumph of faith. He believed that because God promised Isaac, God would not let him stay dead. Even if he killed him, God would raise him from the dead. So Abraham was a great man of faith. He clung to the promises of God. But back in Genesis 22, not, not only is it a triumph of faith, it's a triumph of salvation. Triumph of salvation. Genesis. Genesis 15. Twenty-two Genesis twenty-two fifteen. Look what the Bible says here. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and said, "By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies." In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Same promise. Because you have obeyed my voice. And so notice the backdrop of the story. There's something a lot bigger than just Abraham and Isaac. Much bigger. God is testing him to see if he's going to keep his end of the covenant. And God says, I'm going to keep my end of the covenant. I'm going to, to take this son Isaac, who I promised to give you and I gave to you. I'm going to make a great nation through him. 
through his descendants, the Jewish people, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed because one day a Messiah will come and die for their sin. So, so he's speaking here of the salvation that would be offered through the Jewish people through Jesus Christ. So this is a triumph of salvation. God is keeping his promise to Abraham. He's keeping his promise to send a redeemer for the world. A triumph of salvation. So this story is an ancient story. It's about Abraham. It's about Isaac. But it's about you. And it's about me. This is God keeping his promise so that he could send through the Jewish people a Savior for you, to die for you, to die for me. Isn't that awesome? That's what's happening here. It's a, there's a bigger picture, a bigger context. It's a, a triumph of salvation. But then to kind of narrow it back down and think about Abraham and Isaac, it's a triumph of substitution. A triumph of substitution. After they get the ram out of the thicket and offer him as a burnt offering. Verse 14 says, Abraham called the name of the, the, the place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. He's saying there, the Lord provided a ram so that Isaac did not have to die. Abraham understood, Isaac understood, that this ram was taking Isaac's place. Can you imagine how grateful they were for that ram? How grateful they were that there was a substitute so Isaac did not have to experience the knife. Isaac did not have to die. A triumph of substitution. You can't look at this without thinking of the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Jesus became our substitute, right? I think this foreshadows the substitutionary work of Christ. Jesus went to the cross so that we would not have to go to the cross. I love this description of what happened after God provides the ram. And it comes from a Unlikely source, you might think. It comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible, written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's a great Bible for children. We use it in our home all the time. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you've got kids in your home, you need to have the Jesus Storybook Bible. You can get them at Lifeway. It is a great, great uh, Bible that, that shows how all the stories of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, they all point to Jesus. And it's just a really, really powerful um, book. But in that, in one of my favorite stories in that book is the story of Abraham and Isaac. And look how she ends this story. After they had seen God provide a ram in Isaac's place, as God renews the covenant that we just read, she writes, And as they sat there on the mountaintop, watching the embers of the fire die in the cool night air, the stars above them sparkling in the velvet sky, God helped Abraham and Isaac understand something. God wanted his people to live, not die. God wanted to rescue his people, not punish them. But they must trust him. One day someone will be born into your family, God promised them, and he will bring happiness to the whole world. God was getting ready to give the whole world a wonderful present. It would be God's way to tell his people, I love you. See, many years later, another son would climb another hill, carrying wood on his back. Like Isaac, he would trust his father and do what his father asked. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? God's son. His only son, the son he loved, the Lamb of God. You see, Isaac is a picture of Jesus, an Old Testament type or foreshadowing of Jesus. The one who was the son of God and went to the top of a hill, not Moriah, which is where the temple was eventually built, but to a hill called Golgotha. And he died 
on the cross as our substitute. God provided Jesus as our substitute so we would not have to experience his wrath and his judgment against our sin. So there's a, some triumphs here. The triumph declared, triumph of faith, triumph of salvation, triumph of substitution. It's a beautiful story, is it not? How many of you watched the Bible that came on the History Channel this uh, last, was it Sunday night? This story was in there, was it not? Uh, how, I didn't see that. I saw the end of it. How was the story of Abraham and Isaac? Was it good? Was it, was it pretty powerful? I watched, this, I watched the uh, last, I watched from the Passover to the very end of that first episode. And, uh, and it, it was, it was, there were some edifying parts. There were some parts that had me scratch my head a little bit. But, uh, but no one asked me about it. So, um, uh, But you, you got just listen. When you watch things like that, just realize you need to go back to the Word. Test everything by the Word. Okay? For example, I didn't want to give up. For example, when the Red Sea parted, a million Jewish people didn't just outrun Pharaoh and his chariot to the other side. The Bible says that God came between them with a pillar of, of cloud to stop them so that when they were stopped behind the pillar of cloud, the Hebrews made it across the other side. And then, once they made it to the other side, then Pharaoh's army pursued them into the Red Sea and God allowed the waters to, to come and crush them. Wasn't, I mean, you're not going to have, you know, a family with, with, with children and babies outrunning Pharaoh's chariots. Okay, that's just kind of silly. And they just, I said, why would you leave out the miraculous movement of God to block them and stop them while they got across the Red Sea? That was one thing that kind of... And the thing that, the thing that really... That, I said I wasn't going to go. Let me tell you the thing that bothered me the most about it. And again, I watched the last 30 minutes or so. Um, and again, there's some parts of it that edified me. I thought the Passover scene was cool. They're putting the blood over the door. I thought that was good. Um, the last scene showed Joshua, Moses, um, the, Moses' successor. The last scene showed Joshua praying at the Ark of the Covenant. And he's praying there, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant is under some kind of a tent. People are walking by, you know, walking by the Ark of the Covenant. And I thought, read the Bible. No one looked at the Ark of the Covenant. They put it in a holy of holies with a big curtain in front of it. Only one person once a year could go into that room. It was the high priest. Joshua was not a high priest. And Joshua was having this little prayer time at the Ark of the Covenant. He would be struck dead for doing that. And the people walking by outside, they would look at it. They'd be struck dead too. I thought, what in the world? Just read Leviticus. Just read it. Just, just one time. And you'll see that the Ark of the Covenant was not sitting out in the open like that. But other than that, I mean, you, you know, you just got to... That's missing the whole point. The, the whole point of the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and the holy place and the Holy of Holies and the, the altar of incense and the table of showbread and the candlestick and all of that was meant to show them you cannot approach God on your own terms. He's a holy God. You are sinful. You cannot approach God without the shedding of blood. And you have to have a high priest that will go before you, go before God with the shed blood and, 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 and sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And based upon that shedding of blood, which is a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, I will forgive you and let you worship me. But if you do not have the shed blood, if you do not have a priest, you cannot come close to me. And when you just put the Ark of the Covenant out in the opening, that, that's, you're just missing all that. But anyway, I, I feel better now. Let me, let me just say this. I'm grateful for people that want to make good shows and, and biblical shows, but there's, there's no production that Hollywood can do that even comes close to the power of the biblical story. I mean, I was watching and thinking, that's pretty cool, but man, it's not, I just, I just can't imagine what it would have been like to have been there that day. I mean, it just, you can't even come close to the biblical drama that's in the pages of Scripture. And number two, 
um, the powers in the Word of God, not on a, a production of the Word of God or based upon, loosely based upon the Word of God. And so things like that, watch it, be edified, you know, be encouraged if there's some parts that are good, but test it by the Scriptures, okay? Let it make, make you go back and say, huh, did it happen like that? Go back and read the story for yourself. That might be a good, maybe if your family's watching, you're watching with your kids, and you think, well, I'm not sure about that. Let's go back and read the story. It'd be a great opportunity just to go back and read how it really happened. Okay? So I'm going to watch it next week. I'm, go, I'm, going, to, I'm going in for round two, all right? Uh, partly because I saw, I looked at the preview, and they're doing uh, David and Goliath. I want to see how they do David and Goliath, because I've just been preaching on that. And they're doing the anointing of, of David by Samuel, so I want to see that too. So, um, so we're going to watch that. So hopefully it's going to be good. Now I'll have to take up my frustration on you next week. All right? And honestly, I was watching it. With, I was trying not to be critical. I said, I'm not going to be critical. I'm just going to watch it and just enjoy it. And just and when I saw Joshua praying for the Ark of the Covenant, I thought, what in the world? But anyway. I mean, <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark had it better. Had, had, they, they had it more accurate than, than the Bible show that was on History Channel. Because the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? They looked at it and they all melted at the end. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a little bit more close. That's closer than what happened in that story. Yeah, all right. Okay, I feel better. Where was I? How did I get off on that? I have no idea how I got off on that. Where was I? Seriously, where was I? No, oh, G told me about it. Okay, great. Okay, now, as we think about uh, the triumph declared, think about God providing a substitute. I want to just give you some thoughts about God being a provider, okay? First of all, God had the will to provide a substitute. He had the will. By that, I mean God wanted to provide a substitute. He didn't want Isaac to die ultimately. It was a test. He wanted Isaac to live. And so he provided this, sub- he had this desire to provide a substitute. And that reminds us that God has a desire to provide a substitute for us. The re- only reason Jesus came and died for us was because God wanted him to, right? One of the first verses we learned, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, God had the, the desire to save us, and that's why Jesus died for our sins. We should be grateful that God has a desire to provide a substitute, to provide a redeemer, to provide a rescuer, to provide a savior for us. God had the will to provide a substitute. Secondly, God had the ability to provide a substitute. In his providence and his power and his wisdom, he arranged that just when they needed the substitute, he'd be there caught in the thicket. You think that was, you think that was uh, coincidence? No, that's God providing a ram at the right time, a substitute to die in the place of Isaac. He had the ability to provide a substitute. Now, here's, the, here's what I want you to get about this. If God had the will to save but not the power to save, we'd be in trouble. Amen? He'd think, boy, I really want to help you out, guys. I... I want to save you. You're, you're in a mess. Uh, but I, I can't do anything about it. I'm sorry. And if he had the power to save, but not the will to save, we'd be in a mess, right? He was some capricious uh, deity that, that didn't care about people at all. And he thought, well, you've blown it. Uh, too bad for you. And you're just going to go to hell. And I'm not intervening in any sort. If he had the power to save, but not the, the desire, we'd be in trouble. But here in this story, we see that the Lord has the desire to provide, and he has the power to provide. That's important, the desire and the power. And he, and he showed himself strong 
and willing in Abraham's life. Now, as you think about God having the ability to provide a substitute, look what it says uh, in verse 14. It says, the Lord called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. Now, that word provide, most of the time in the Old Testament, is translated see, S-E-E. Okay? How the word's translated most of the time. So what's the, defin- what's the connection between seeing and providing? Do those two ideas have any connection at all? Well, they do. Think of this word. Think of the word provision. Okay, provision is made up of two Latin words. Pro, which is, means beforehand, and vision, which means to see. It means to see beforehand. That's what the word provision means. So when we think about God providing, what we're saying is God sees beforehand what we need. And he's willing to meet that need when we have it. And he's able to meet that need when we have it because he sees it all beforehand. Isn't that good? So it's translated to see, it's translated provision, but those have the same idea. In this case, in in Genesis 22, he had seen beforehand and anticipated Abraham's need for a sacrifice, and he had personally provided one. And so he was willing and able to provide. Now, here's the the major truth I want you to walk away with, okay? They're in bold letters. We're going to tie all this together to think about the, the Lord being our provider. If we can trust God with the most important matter in our lives, we can trust Him with every matter in our lives. What's He providing here for Isaac? Salvation, right? A substitute. What's He provide for us through Jesus Christ? Salvation, a substitute. This all foreshadows the work of and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So, if we can trust God to provide for our most important need, which is salvation. That's what we need the most, right? We're all desperately in need of a Savior. If we can trust God to meet our most important need, then don't you think we can trust Him with the rest of our life too? If we can trust Him to provide at our greatest area of need, I believe we can trust Him to to provide in all of our areas of need. And so this idea of God providing a substitute, God providing a sacrifice in Isaac's place, should remind us that God is willing and able to provide in terms of salvation, but also to provide in every area of importance in our lives. So let me just show you a few, few verses. Turn to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, verse 1. By the way, I read an article in this Bible show that came on History Channel. I have one more thing I want to say about it. And uh, as you turn into Psalm 23, and they, they said they had a team of scholars uh, that were overseeing the project to make sure it was biblically accurate. You know who the first name was? Joel Osteen. Second name? T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes is not even a Trinitarian. And he's the biblical scholar overseeing the biblical accuracy of this film. And I thought, wow. But anyway, that, that troubled me. That troubled me. Because there are a lot of very biblical scholars that could really provide some guidance to that project. I think it would be good. Okay. Now, Psalm 23, verse 1. The Bible says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not what? I shall not want. It means I shall not want for anything I need. You know, the metaphor here is beautiful. It's the metaphor of a shepherd providing for a sheep. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd. 
I'm his sheep. He'll provide for me what I need. You know what a shepherd does? A shepherd provides for their, their, their flock's um, nourishment. They provide protection. Uh, they provide care for them when they are, when they are hurt. How many have read the, the book, uh, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm? Anybody ever read that book by a guy named J. Philip Keller? It's an older book. It's a beautiful, isn't it Philip Keller? Not his name, J. Philip Keller. And, and it's, a, it's a beautiful book. Yeah, I, I suggest you read it. He was a, a shepherd. This J. Philip Keller is a real-life shepherd. And he read Psalm 23 and kind of brought some insights from his shepherding into this psalm to, to kind of help us understand what's meant here. And he shared an illustration there I thought was great. He said one of the shepherd's jobs was to watch over the flock and see if they had any cast sheep. So it was a cast sheep. Well, sheep, you know, they're not the most graceful animals in the world. We're called sheep, by, by the way, a lot in the Bible. Do with that what you want to. But, but sheep would sometimes uh, fall over, stumble or whatever, and they would actually, maybe a, a, a low place in the ground, they actually roll over with their feet in the air. And according to J. Philip Keller, their center of gravity would shift. They were not able to get themselves back on their feet. So they're kind of laying there. You can imagine this sheep laying there with his feet in the air. And what would happen is the gases would build up, and if you didn't catch them in time, they would die. Okay? So a shepherd's job is they're, they're looking. They're looking. If they see a cast sheep, feet in the air, they go and they, they pick them up and put them back on their feet. They're, 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 they're helping them out. And what he tied that into is he tied it into the verse, Psalm 23, verse 3, where it says, He restores my soul. And he talked about how sometimes in our, in our Christian journeys, we all fall down, we all stumble, we all, we all get in a predicament, right, in our lives. And he says the shepherd is one who provides for us. He's on the lookout for us when we're wounded, when we're hurt, when we're, when we're in peril. And he comes, he picks us up, and he puts us back on our feet. When the Lord is our shepherd, we don't want for anything that we need. He gives us, he provides for us everything that we need. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's, a, he's Jehovah Jireh, he's a providing God. Amen? Let me show you another passage. Turn over to 2 Corinthians, New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. If you're making a, if you're doing a miniseries on the triune God of the universe, you might want to have a scholar that believes in the Trinity. And that's the last thing I'm saying. That's the last thing. <laughs> Just frustrated by that. The, the Trinity is not some trivial little complicated doctrine that we're just supposed to kind of believe and not really, you know, think is that big of a deal. The Trinity is the very essence and nature of God. One God in character and person revealing himself in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Trinity, you don't have redemption. You don't have salvation without the Trinity. Because when God the Father is pouring out his wrath, there has to be a second person, a second infinite person of the Godhead there to take the wrath of God in our place, i.e. Jesus. And the Trinity is a huge deal. I mean, it's a, you don't have salvation without the Trinity. You don't have the God of the Bible without the Trinity. So anyway. I'm going to do a sermon series on the Trinity sometime soon, I think. Just FYI. Now, look at 2 Corinthians 9.8. It had nothing to do with what I'm about to read. Look at 2 Corinthians 9.8. The Bible says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good 
deep. So he's saying, hey, God is a God that provides for you everything you need, when you need it, for everything that you need to do. He will provide for you an abundance for every good deed. Notice there's the abundance for good deeds. It's, it's provision for, for you being able to do things for God. And I believe when we step out of faith and do something for God, we will never lack provision. Uh, there's an old quote, I don't even know who, who said it first, but the quote says something like this. If we do God's work in God's ways, we will never lack God's resources. If we do God's work in God's way, we will never let, lack God's resources. He, he gives an abundance to meet our needs as we do good deeds. This is not, okay, God will make sure you have cable television. Okay? Or God will make sure that you have, you know, um, a four-wheeler. Or that's not what he's talking about. He gives you an abundance. He meets your needs for every good deed. Everybody see that? Okay. Now, turn over with me last to Philippians 4. Philippians 4.19. Philippians 4.19, well-known passage here. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. We'll read the verse and we're going to kind of back up and think about the context for a moment. Look what he says. My God will supply all your, what? Needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's not hard to provide for our needs because he has all the riches of heaven. I mean... Not, it's not like God has to strain to meet our needs or, 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 or you know, God's just barely getting by. He, he, he meets our needs according to the riches of glory. Now, what's the context here? The context here is Paul is writing to a church that was supporting him in his missionary endeavors. Matter of fact, a little bit earlier in chapter 4, he says, Hey, I just want to thank you that you showed concern for me by helping meet my needs as a missionary. You were kingdom-focused. You were giving your resources away to help me out. And you need to understand that as you are a kingdom-focused church, I know that God's going to meet all your needs according to his riches and glory. This is not just some just blanket statement, God's going to meet all your needs. This is God meets the needs of those who are doing kingdom work. That's the context here, that, that are involved in, in making a difference for the glory of God. And so I believe that if we're doing God's work in God's way, biblically, then we can always stand on the promise that God will provide his resources to get done what he wants to accomplish in and through our lives. And so God is a provider. Jehovah Jireh. Uh, he provided a substitute for Isaac. Foreshadowed the substitute, substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. And if we can trust God with the most important matter in our lives, we can trust him with every matter in our lives. He is a God that will meet our needs according to his riches in glory. Aren't you glad? I'm tell you, I've, I've been studying this week, I've been studying Genesis 22 as we think about Abraham and Isaac and the Lord providing, and I'm, I'm working on my sermon for Sunday, which is 1 Samuel 19, which is uh, God's protection over David's life. We're going to talk about God being a protector on Sunday, and just these, these major themes about God, and it's just made me so grateful for, for God, just his, his, his constant care for our lives, that the fact that he cares about us, that he he provides for us when we have needs. He, he protects us when we have uh, uh, enemies. He, he, he's a God that, that, that cares about our lives. There's, there's, there's a reason the Bible says that he knows how many hairs are on our head, right? There's a reason Psalm 56 says that, that he captures our tears in a bottle. He flat cares about us. I mean, he does. I mean, he is a God who 
cares about us deeply, more than we want to be cared about. He's Jehovah Jireh. He's the Lord, our provider. And I hope you'll think deeply about that name of God uh, in the coming days.